Go to Genesis chapter 12. Hope I didn't break that. How many of you guys are excited that football has started? (laughs) Honestly, I was... Just so you know, the night that the Seahawks play on a Thursday, we are just going to watch the game. That's what's going to happen. And then we might talk about Jesus later, depending on if they win or lose. We'll see. But... Genesis chapter 12. Um, like Brittany said, we're in this series called Essentials, and we're looking at the essential stories of the Bible. And we started last week this, with this idea of creation, and then after that, the fall of man, and how God is working to restore man after that. And we want to jump in now, a couple chapters later, into the story of a guy named Abraham. Um, this, this story honestly warrants a entire series on its own. This guy is a pivotal character in the Old Testament and in the story arc, the line of Jesus, but we're going to try to tackle it in a night. And so I apologize if I talk fast and I hope you catch most of it. The other thing is I would encourage you to go back and read the stuff that we're talking about. I hope as we start uncovering and looking at some of these stories that it sparks a desire in you to come to understand this a little better yourself. Um, The Bible, as we're looking at it, is not this stagnant history book, though it does play a role in that. It really truly is this living word that allows us to pull precepts, concepts, and truths out to allow us to live a better life. The idea is not just that we would come to know Jesus, and that was enough. If that was true, then we would be sapped up to heaven in that moment. The goal is that we come to understand the figure, the personality of Jesus, understand what makes him tick, understand what makes him work, so we can begin to apply that to our lives to become more like him, so we can live a life that screams that Jesus works. And that is why the Bible's here. It's not this stagnant thing that sits beside our beds or sits in the back seat of our car or is in most hotel rooms you have ever stayed in. The idea of the Bible is that's this tool that we use to live a better life. We want to dive in in Genesis chapter 12. We'll start in verse 1 with this portion of scripture that is called the Abrahamic Covenant. Learn that in Bible college. Woohoo! All right. Genesis 12, chapter 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Kind of in a vacuum, kind of hard to understand. We need to realize that Abram was obviously not living in the land that God was going to take him to show him. He was actually living with his dad. His dad did not serve and did not worship the God that we see Abram decide to give his life to following. So God says, we need to get you out of the situation that you were in. Take your stuff, 
your wife, her name was Sarah, and let's get you going and moving towards what I have for you. But he doesn't just say that I'm going to bless you and leave it there. He says, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you a great nation, and you will be a blessing to others. It's interesting that God's initial, here we go, definition of blessing is that blessing, God's promises to us, should never stay with us. That right off the bat, we see God define blessing not as something that stays with us, but turns around and goes back out to other people. As we see God begin to unfold this promise that he's making to Abram, the end game of Abram's life and this promise that is presented to him was to make God's name great. I think a lot of us get these promises, these urges, these inklings of what God's calling us to, and it ends with us, and it becomes, I just need to accomplish that for me. And we forget that what we're called to do is to be a blessing as God blesses us. It's never supposed to stay with us. Fast forward with me a couple chapters. Let's hop down to chapter 15. And again, I'm not doing the story justice, but I'm laying a foundation to get us to a certain point. In chapter 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, I am a shield to you, your reward will be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. See, Abram had a problem with this promise that he's going to be the father of a great nation. Abram was already 70-something years old when God called him. So how is he supposed to be the father of this great nation if he's getting to the point where it's probably getting a little physically impossible for that to happen? So his conversation to God is, you've made me this promise that is starting to be naturally, practically impossible. This is the question that he phrases to God. And then God said, the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but the one will come forth from your own body, he will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look towards the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to them, so shall your descendants be. Verse 6, then Abram believed the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. God's promise was, I'm still going to make this happen. But how Abram and Sarah decide to respond to that is really interesting. Next chapter, we see Sarah go to Abram and say, I'm getting old. It's impossible for me to have children. I want you to sleep with my maid and produce a child. So that way we have an heir to what God has promised us. Next chapter, it says one chapter before Abram believed that God was going to make this promise happen. One chapter later, he's saying, I'm out. Don't believe it's going to work. Let's just make this thing happen on our own. It says that Abram went and slept with Hagar, Sarah's maid, and they produced a child. And in verses 5 and 6 in chapter 16, it's interesting. It says, even though it was Sarah's idea to have Abram sleep with her maid, Hagar, once the child was born, Sarah despised Hagar and the child. So much so that she went to Abram and said, you and I are having marriage trouble because you slept with Hagar. And Abram's like, hey, yo, this was your idea. You figure this out. It says that Sarah treated Hagar poorly, despised her, treated her badly. 
This is what we do. We get this promise from God. Hey, I have the man of your dreams in store. The woman, your Proverbs 31 woman, is on the way. (laughs) And we're excited about it. And then a year passes by. And we're like, I'm I'm not getting any younger. I'm 23. I'm pretty old. (laughs) I'm pretty tired of being lonely. So uh, that promise that God made, I think I'm going to help him speed it up a little bit. (laughs) And all of a sudden, we start going on dates with people that we know we really even shouldn't be in relationship with. And then we end up dating them, and we're so frustrated. We're so happy, but we're so frustrated. Why? It's because we put our hands on a timeline that we don't understand. And we decided that we were going to force a promise that wasn't ours to force. We try to force things into happening that were promised to us by someone else. By God, who sees time from the framework of eternity. And all of a sudden it's, man, I know I really need that job in that field, but I don't want to have to work and go through all the steps and the process it's going to take to get there. So close enough to the promise becomes good enough for me. And we end up frustrated and bitter and full of resentment at God when it was our fault because we didn't let him work his process. And now all of a sudden we have the fulfillment of what we claim is close enough to the promise. And this is the interesting thing. We see it work for someone else And we despise them for it. We see God come through with someone else who was willing to wait through the process and work through what God was working them through. And we see God prove himself faithful to them. And we're frustrated at their success because we know we forced our process and settled for close enough to good enough. We turn ourselves into Sarah more often than we realize. It says in chapter 18 that Abram and Sarah are sitting in front of their tent one day and these three guys show up. Some commentators believe it was God and two angels. Some of them believe that it's three angels. It really doesn't matter. What they say is most important. Abram runs over to Sarah and says, these three important guys just showed up. Let's cook some food. You stay in the tent. I'm going to go host them. Abram walks back out to the guys. The three guys say, hey, where is Sarah, your wife? By the time we come back next year, Sarah will be with child. Sarah hears this in the tent and laughs to herself and says, How can I be with child? I am really old. That's literally what it says. It's in her 90s now. And it says the Lord responded to Abraham, which is why most people think this is actually God. The Lord responds to Abraham and says, Why did Sarah laugh? But it's interesting, his next statement is, at the appointed time, at the appointed time, I will return, and this time next year, Sarah will be with child. See, this is the thing a lot of us miss about the promises we get from God, and the faith it takes to get there, is that there is an appointed time for those things to happen. Ecclesiastes put it this way, there is a season for 
everything. And a lot of us think the appointed time is when God tells us that the promise is coming. And we forget that there is process that it takes to get there. Step by step, God is moving Abram and Sarah to a point where their faith is going to be able to handle the miracle that God's going to bring into their life. In chapter 21, we see Isaac be born. It says that God remembered Sarah and she became with child. And Isaac is born. Now we have this problem. We have the forced promise with Hagar and her son Ishmael. And then we have the actual fulfillment of the promise with Sarah and Isaac. And those two things cannot exist together. So much so that Abram sends Hagar and Ishmael out into the desert. And says, I hope you find the town next door. Because i got to keep my wife and my newborn content. And there's this whole powerful thing that happens with Hagar and Ishmael. We don't want to focus on that. Where we want to hone in is on chapter 22. We'll be done in just a sec. So Isaac is somewhere between 15 and 30 in the story. We're not quite sure. Abraham, Abraham is about 100 years old as we jump into chapter 22 came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham responded, here I am. Verse 2, he said, now take your son, your only son, whom you love Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. And our English translation in the Bible does not do justice to this exchange. There's actually an exchange here in the Hebrew. It goes in the Hebrew. It goes more like this. Now take your son. And Abraham would have responded, which one? I have two. And then he goes, your only son. God says your only son. Well, actually, technically, God, not to argue, but both my sons are only sons. They each have different moms. Well, then the one that you love. Well, I, I kind of love both. I love both my sons, I guess. <laughs> and then God responds, Isaac. It's like Abraham is hoping that what God is asking for is Ishmael. This is what we do. Hey God, you know that thing that I forced to make happen that I've already given up and set aside? I'm going to hope that that's what you asked for. Hey, you know that promise that I kind of forced to make happen, that relationship that I shouldn't have been in, and I came, hey, for the record, God, I realized that after a really convicting message at camp, and I gave it up and I walked away from it. I, get, I deserve credit for that. Can we just end this? Let's not ask for anything else. It, this, this is literally God's demand. I want you to take your son, the one that you love, Isaac, I want you to kill him on a mountain I take you to, and then burn him as a sacrifice to me. Three issues with that statement. First one is this. A chapter ago, chapter 21, verse 12, God promises Abraham, through Isaac, your descendants will be established. This is in direct contradiction to everything Abraham has built his life towards. And yet God is asking for it. Second one, how the heck does Abraham tell Sarah? Hey, you know, this God that we're both kind of getting used to following, um, he wants me to kill our son. You know that one that's a miracle that you had at 100? 
really cool. They'll probably brag about that for the rest of eternity. Yeah, that one. Not the one that I had with your maid. Let's not talk about that. We dealt with it in counseling. But the one, the one that you and I had, yeah, that one, God, God wants that one. And then on top of that, we've got to remember that culturally what Abraham is declaring, that there is one God worth following that has taken him from his family on the same trek that the people of Israel later go to Canaan. He's now in this foreign land among foreign people. This weird guy with all this stuff who's following them that had a kid with his maid, but now has a, a kid with his wife who's a hundred, and he's declaring there is one God, not all these gods. How, how am I supposed to tell all of those people that this God that I'm claiming is for me and gave me promises is now going to take away the fulfillment of that? Can you imagine the tension in Abraham? Every right to say, let me pray about it, God. I'm going to seek some wise counsel and make sure that my pastor thinks that this is God telling me to do that. My favorite question when people ask me what they should do is, well, what do you think you should do? Because Abraham knew deep down in his soul at the first encounter and conversation with God this time. He knew what God was asking for. And yet he tried to talk and converse his way out of it. I would hope that when God begins to move in your spirit and gives you a promise and says, this is where I'm taking you and this is what it's going to take to get there, I would hope that you wouldn't talk yourself out of it. Please don't over-spiritualize your obedience to God. Well, I'm just going to pray about it for six months and really hope that the opportunity passes entirely and I'll just be bitter about it later. I'm just going to, I'm going to talk. This is another one we do. This is another one we do. We change churches. Can I be real for a second? Hey, everyone in this church knows what I'm going through and knows what I need to leave behind. So I'm just going to go attend another church now and hope they don't figure that out. Hey, I, um, I'm going to change my friend group because, man, this accountability thing is totally overrated and it takes too much growth. And they all know what God's calling me to and what I'm supposed to leave behind. But look what Abraham's response. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young servants with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. There is no questioning in Abraham. We don't even see Abraham converse with Sarah. It just says that he wakes up the next morning and fulfills the command that God had asked him to. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey, and I and my son will go over there. And notice his verbiage, and we will worship and return to you. We, Abraham. God told you to kill Isaac. There is no we in the return. It should be, I will return to you. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Interesting though. 
says in verse 17, concluding that God was able to raise him from the dead. Abraham was so convinced that God's promise was true, he believed, okay, Isaac may be dead to me now, but God's going to raise him from the dead. Because God's promises are true. And he wouldn't have said this if he didn't intend to accomplish it. Which brings us to this conclusion. It is our job to obey the command. And God's job to fulfill the promise. A lot of us spend a lot of time reminding God of what he called us to. And doing our best to fulfill the promise. When in reality it's our job to just obey. And then allow God to prove himself faithful. Abraham, verse 6, took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. That's true faith. Abraham even brought the knife. Man, I would have been looking for every excuse. I kind of left that at home. My bad, God. Abraham is so convinced of God's faithfulness that God's going to do the miraculous that he brings the knife with him. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and Abraham said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. Now Abraham's gone from God's going to raise you from the dead to, well, God probably has some lamb up there that's going to walk up, doesn't know how bad his day's about to be. Verse 9, Then they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Remember, Isaac is somewhere between 15 and 30. Has every right to say, I'm out, this is stupid, I don't want to play a role in this. And yet Isaac had enough faith to trust his father. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch your hand out against your son and do nothing to him. This is important. For now I know that you fear God. Begs the question, did God really need to know that Abraham feared God? God's God. God knew that Abraham feared God. He knew he had faith. This sentence is better translated. Now I know that you fear God, and now it has been made known to the world. It's interesting to me that what started with a test of Abraham's faith is now a story used to show us what true faith looks like. Never underestimate your response to what we call a test could be the example that God uses to show what true faith in God looks like to your friends, to your family, to those around you, to your coworkers. We end this story with Abraham calling the place the Lord will provide. God does provide. He provides a ram in a thicket. In essence, this thing of thorns. And as we end, it's a couple cool things, observations about this story. We see for the first time a type of Jesus. That type is this fancy biblical word that says, we have a character in the Old Testament showing us similarities 
to what Jesus walked through and the role he played in the New Testament. Isaac and Jesus in this story is really similar. They were both loved by their father. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. It says in Hebrews 11 that Isaac was Abraham's begotten son. They were both loved by the father. Number two, they both carried what ultimately was meant to kill them up a hill. Isaac carried the wood for the sacrifice. Jesus carried the cross. Number three, is they both went willingly. Jesus willingly went to the cross to pay the price for our sins. Isaac willingly went to be sacrificed by his father in obedience to God. The last one is this, and this is really interesting, is actually the mountaintop that Isaac was to be sacrificed on is in close proximity to the place where Jesus ultimately hung on the cross. You want to talk about faith building to the New Testament church who was raised in Jewish tradition, as they're hearing this story of Abraham and Isaac, and they're recalling what they just experienced watching Jesus do on the cross, all of a sudden, the Old Testament isn't this thing full of rules for the people of Israel. It's this showing of the love that God has for His people. The fact that this ram was caught in the thicket, the fact that Jesus wore a crown of thorn upon His head, He was the Lamb that was slain for our sins. The analogy and the comparison can't be missed on us. And it's not just because it's cool that the Bible is all interconnected. But it's because we're seeing a man show what true faith really is. True faith is not, I'm going to know how deep the pool is before I jump in. True faith is what you're doing in the chair that you sit in right now. True faith, you sit in a chair assuming it has the power to hold you. You don't pick up the chair and examine it and flip it over and make sure the bolts are of size and make sure an insured code, right? You just sit in a chair because you trust it. That is the same type of faith that we are called to have in God and that Abraham put in God on that mountain. I can't see it. I don't really understand what makes it work. But I'm going to put my full weight on the fact that God is going to prove himself faithful. This is the other cool thing about Abraham's story. Is Abraham is called the father of faith. He is referred to as the person, if you want to know what faith looks like, look at Abraham's life. And we see that twice on his journey to this point, he tries to pass his wife off as his sister because he's concerned that the king of those lands are going to kill him. We see him and Sarah laugh at the promise of God. We see him sleep with his maid, trying to accomplish the promise that he had not seen yet. This should bring us hope. See, faith is not our ability every single time to rise to the occasion and say, I'm full of faith. Faith is a muscle that we work out to the point that it's strong enough to put our weight in it. Faith becomes this thing that, yeah, I didn't respond right this time, but I'm going to respond in faith next time. It's this muscle we continue to work until it's strong enough to keep carrying us forward. So I want to ask you the question tonight. Is there a chance that there's some promise in your life that you're trying to Sarah right now? That you're trying to put your hands on and move forward the timeline? 
Or is there a chance that you've already done what Sarah did and quote-unquote made God's promise come true because it was close enough? Is there a chance that there's something in your life right now that God's asking you for? That you paid a price to get? Abraham paid a quite a price, the price of his life, a hundred years to see this happen. Is there a chance that there's something in your life right now that God's asking you for, and you're pulling the conversation back and forth? No, did you really mean, wait, I don't quite understand what you're talking about, but deep down in your soul, you know what God's asking for? Is there a chance that God has you in a season of testing? Not because he's trying to punish you, but because he's trying to let the world know your faith. So it can be an example to others. I don't know where you're at tonight. Why don't you bow your head and close your eyes. We'll wrap up. I don't know where you're at tonight. I don't know where you find yourself But I do know that all of us have been in spots like what we just talked about. Whether we really believe that there's promises to us from God and we're frustrated that they haven't happened yet. We find ourselves in a season of trying to just make them happen. Or maybe we've already made them happen. Or maybe we think that moment has passed us by or... Maybe we finally have what we think we want and find ourselves struggling with the fact that God is asking for it. I don't know where you're at in your faith tonight, the muscle called faith. But I I really do believe we can look at Abraham's life and come to the conclusion it's something we can always work on, something we can always grow in. If you find yourselves kind of impacted by the story in any way, can you just put your hand on your heart? I just want to pray for you tonight. I want it to be complicated. I'm not going to call you forward. I don't want to make a big deal, but I just want to pray. God, we thank you um, that you are forgiving, that you are understanding, and that you're willing to work with us. That though at times we may put our hands on something that isn't ours to grasp for, though we may try to force things into happening when you have a better process that we don't understand, though... We may have a hard time believing that the things that you're calling us to are actually going to happen, though we may not want to give up the things that you're asking of us. I thank you so much that you work with us, that you're willing to try again and again with us to build our muscle of faith. And I I pray for those of us in this room who are struggling right now believing that the things in our soul and our heart that you're calling us to, believing that those are really going to happen. I pray that our faith would be built by this story. That even at a hundred years old, even though they were tested, you still proved your promises true. That it's our job to follow out the command and it's your job to fulfill the promise. We pray that we would be faithful to that. That we would be known as people of faith with those around us. And we love you and we worship you. We thank you. In your name. Amen.